Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 156 for the 16th of July, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski and back with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. Welcome back to the Chat Chat, your very own chatless chat last week. We missed you. And uh, I gather you're in Manhattan at the moment, busy doing some war biking stuff, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I am in Manhattan. Uh, it's a bit bit stormy here today, but uh, working with some uh, American TV networks to share some of the information we've gathered on the insecurity of using uh, unencrypted, unknown origin Wi-Fi. It's uh, always a bit surprising to me that people will just connect to anything they find with their phone and and give it a just give it a whirl to see if they can get on the internet. Oh, look! I I went to a domain that I know well example.com and a website appeared must be the right one let me go ahead and put some credentials in it's sort of asking to be fished isn't it yeah yeah i was i was actually I mean, if it were legal i would be very tempted to uh you know set up a captive portal that says uh, in order to access the free internet please enter your facebook credentials <laughs> and speaking of you know credential storage it reminds me of a story a while back about a flaw in google's uh key store in the android operating system that you wrote about relating to some buffer overflows and of course anytime we're talking about storing of credentials securely whether that's done in hardware say with a, a secure element or whether it's uh, something like the keychain on your Mac or your iPhone or your Android, it's kind of a bad thing when, when the word vulnerability pops up, right? I think there's a little bit of hubris here for Google. Their programmer wrote a comment saying, to keep things simple, buffers are always larger than the maximum space that is needed. So boundary checks on buffers are omitted. And your alarm detector should be hitting about 11 out of 10 by this point. It means that if the guy did make a mistake anywhere and didn't actually allocate a large enough buffer, then the one thing you can be sure is the code isn't even going to realize. And it turned out the programmer made a huge mistake. Uh, He allocated a buffer that was big enough for a file name, which in Android is 255 bytes, uh, name underscore max, and then allowed you to fill this buffer with remotely supplied data. And not only that, he had a special way of encoding the data that could cause what you put in to double in size because of the way it was encoded. And it just goes to show, if you're a programmer, always check. From a performance and size point of view, it really doesn't make that much difference. Well, I, I guess it's an important lesson that Google can make mistakes because the second story wouldn't necessarily be <laughs> as interesting a story to talk about <laughs> if Google was perfect, which is that apparently a VP at Google has suggested that uh, antivirus is totally unnecessary on Android because, of course, Google has a perfect track record at, at not allowing bad stuff into the play market. What, what's your take on that? I mean, I, I guess in full disclosure, everybody knows we work for an antivirus company, so it's pretty obvious that we have some belief that antivirus is a important and necessary component. But I mean, it seems like a pretty bold statement to be making considering, you know, what we've seen in the past with Android. Sorry, I don't think that the security that Google provides by itself in the Play Store is ever going to be as good as it could be. And this uh, chap, uh, Adrian Ludwig, he actually said uh, that, you know, by the time something's got into the Play Store, it's had the best review possible. Well, maybe what he means is it had the best review possible, given the time 
that Google is able to put in, given that it wants to make the Play Store responsive, so it's comparatively easy to get in there. The classic example is that Virus Shield app. Google itself promoted it to the you know the top new paid app of the week or whatever, encouraging people to buy it. It's a security app. You pay four dollars, and it was a fake antivirus. It didn't do anything at all. It claimed you were safe. It pretended to scan your computer, and then said, "Good news, you don't have any malware, anything you don't want." But I think that's good evidence that having an alternative layer of protection is not quite as far fetched as he seems to think. Yeah, and it, it it's uh, also one of these situations where we see a lot of contrast with Apple, where somehow they can almost both be wrong. I mean, Android antivirus apps uh, are usually, at least in the case of our product, our Sophos version, is, you know, capable of a lot more than just antivirus. And they are some of those layers of protection. And if Google was in Apple's shoes saying, hey, you don't need antivirus on our platform because we're really pretty good at filtering this stuff. It's a lot more believable. I mean, Apple has done a fantastic job of keeping malicious applications off of the iPhone and the iPad. But there's still risks to iPhone and iPad users uh, that may not just be viruses and worms and trojans, right? And the ability to produce a security product for Apple devices is something we've long desired to do if we could do things like web filtering to stop you from going to phishing sites where you may be tricked into disclosing your password. Or, you know, there's things beyond malware that uh, can enhance the security position of a user on a mobile device. You know, another kind of um, bad news this week was news that the game over Zeus malware had returned, and I'm not sure I agree with that as a, a headline per se. And that uh, it's it's a new variant of something that looks like it was either based on Game Over or maybe from the people who were originally behind Game Over. Uh, for folks that that may not remember, there was a bit of a, a takedown of the infrastructure of the Game Over Zeus back earlier in 2014, and, uh, you know, this new one bears some resemblance, let's say, but it, I think it's fair to call it a, a new malware family, if not at least a major new branch on the tree, wouldn't you say? The code bears more than just a passing similarity. You know, our own colleague James Wyke in Sophos Labs did look into this in some detail, and we've discovered that it's pretty much the same code. Some parts are not being used, the code's still there. It's either the same guys have decided, you know what, we were making so much money out of this that we may as well just continue because we know a good thing when we see it. Or for all we know, it could be somebody else who's got hold of the source code and uh, reached exactly the same conclusion. But I think it's just a warning that old threats never really go away. They may apparently go into abeyance for a bit, um, but if the crooks can bring them back, they certainly will. And it's also a reminder that no matter how much we should applaud law enforcement, because they did damage this botnet severely for a month, that's still not going to get rid of all the bots in the world. It's one thing to take out the botnet part of that cyber criminal infrastructure, but really, you can't have a botnet without the bots, and until we get rid of those, then we really aren't doing our part yeah, it's it's a pretty complicated situation. Uh, I'm always going to applaud uh, the efforts of law enforcement uh, taking any part of the infrastructure out. It's all helpful. Um, we'd I'd personally rather see the bad guys go to jail, but if the best we can do is disrupt their business model and force them to create new infrastructure and have to 
find new victims and all that. I guess that's a good thing, right? I mean, it makes it harder for the crooks rather than just letting them continue to operate unfettered. But there's also sort of this, you know, the this old vacuum analogy that I've used in previous podcasts that, you know, bad guys will step up. Like you say, it may not be the same guys. Maybe it's somebody who got a hold of the source code. And there's always another criminal who's more than happy to kind of step in and fill the void, unfortunately. If somebody like law enforcement in this case takes out the core of the botnet, so you've got an infected computer that at least for the time being has nowhere to connect to. That's not good enough that you just leave it like that. You still need to remove that malicious software from your computer for two main reasons. One is that you're kind of advertising the fact that you're what you might call a bit of a slob about security because that bot will still be trying to call home. And anyone who can see, for example, your DNS request is going to be able to work out that you're infected. So even if they're a good guy and they've got good intentions, they know that you're not really up to scratch on security. And the flip side of that is that if they don't have good intentions, and we were talking about Wi-Fi access points earlier, and they're running a controlling an access point, say in a shopping mall or something, then basically as soon as they see you trying to connect to a now defunct botnet, by stepping in, they've got a blueprint for how to tell your computer what to do. So the the fact that the network part of a botnet's been removed by law enforcement isn't an excuse for you to say, oh, well, I don't have to worry about potential malicious software of that sort on my computer because it's now just harmless malware. There ain't no such thing. Well, and, and talking about trying to make things better, I mean, obviously cleaning up the bots makes things better. Getting rid of the infrastructure makes things better. Removing complexity often makes things better, and we, we saw an effort led by the OpenBSD team and Theo, a fellow Canadian of mine, a fellow immigrant as well, kick off this Libra SSL project to uh, kind of try to clean up, pare down, and simplify the OpenSSL code in order to hopefully you know remove some of the vulnerabilities and, and just make it a bit, uh, I guess, more easy to maintain. Uh, there, there was a portable version released. I know you experimented with it a bit uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, what, what's the scoop? Is it is it ready to go? Can we just can we drop open SSL and put in this new clean replacement? I wrote in a rather gung ho fashion that I hope Theo's very proud of, saying yes, it's all good. And I was then forced to admit that what I mean is that when I did dot slash configure make make check on OS ten, it all went absolutely swimmingly. Uh, and then I I must have done up to two minutes of uh, detailed experimentation and testing. I guess what I was interested really in is looking at where they've got to in just a couple of months of work. You know, they took the approach instead of having a committee and redesigning and starting again, they figured that the best way to get people to shift is if they make something that's a drop in replacement for OpenSSL. So you can just take one out and put in the new one but they would leave out all of the redundant stuff. So they've actually, as I lightheartedly put, now up to 48% less huge. There are just about half as many files in the distribution. And they're about, you know, there's about 30% of the code has actually been stripped out. And sometimes in code, less is very much more. I had heard that they had also removed support for things like DOS and 16-bit windows and, you know, this type of stuff. So, you know, I guess getting rid of all that legacy code has to help because more modern operating systems are 
uh, often e easier to code for in these ways, right? Better memory management is included right in the OS. Yes, and the other problem is that if you look at code that's extra super portable, uh, these days you will probably find, A, that the developers no longer actually have some of the older platforms. So they can't actually test that the code works at all anyway, so there's no point in having it there. And B, you can easily end up with a spaghetti-like mess of, you know, in C, what's called if-defs, you know, where conditional compilation. And you end up with code that when you look at it, you just cannot possibly predict what it's going to do. Some of it gets compiled in, some of it gets left out, some of it gets left in but chosen at runtime. It just becomes an unmanageable mess, as you say, to support 16-bit Windows. Sorry, 16-bit Windows user, you're out of luck. Well, exactly. And, I, you know, it sounds like it's not quite ready for prime time to be dropped in yet. I, I did some reading myself with some lots of different people that were playing with it. And quite a few folks have successfully actually gotten an entire Linux distribution built using it, um, including, you know, a lot of uh, applications, uh, not just the operating system. You know, it's still early days, right? This is pretty much the first release of this portable LibreSSL. In my opinion, a lot of the criticisms of it are, are unfounded in that the whole point of it was, hey, community, here's what we've done. What do you think and what more could we do was what I read into it uh, as sort of a preview release to get feedback from the world on how to make it even better. Yes, I guess Theo and the team figured, well, OpenSSL, they don't seem to be listening. They've got these bugs that have been fixed for ages and ages and ages. You know, we can either form a committee and shout at them like everyone else, or we can fork the code, good open source fashion, and actually go at it hammer and tongs. And we're going to start by making the code easier to maintain by getting into a standardized form. Once you know what code's supposed to look like, it makes it much easier to review. We're going to remove this needless memory management layer that had been put on top of the operating system's memory management layer. And we're going to get rid of the legacy, legacy, legacy code, with the result that already, you know, they've cut out a huge amount of it. There's a little maxim that says, if your coding productivity can be measured in negative kilo lines of code that you write, because you're actually simplifying something, but yet delivering equivalent functionality, you can argue that Occam's razor says, you've got the better version. So let's see how it goes. And if you're a coder, give it a go. It's a great way to contribute to our communal safety. I agree. Well, that concludes episode 156 of the Sofa Security Chat Chat. As always, for the latest podcasts available from us, you can get those over at soundcloud.com slash Security. You can find us on iTunes. We've got an RSS feed. We're on the uh, TuneIn app. And the latest security news is always available over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Until next time, stay secure.